Ali Sabah and Bassem Barish spent their Friday night staying up late to study for finals. When the young men were wrapping up for the night, well after midnight, they still had a bit of a drive to complete for some weekend plans. The two college students lived in northern Utah and were driving from the town of Logan down to Ogden about an hour away. Ogden was just to the north of Salt Lake City, and there were numerous towns along the way, so as far as desert drives go, there were more places to stop if they needed anything than in more isolated spots of the state. But at four in the morning, the roads were deserted and almost everything was closed. At about the halfway point in the town of Perry, just outside Brigham City, the boys spotted a 24-hour gas station. It was called the Short Stop and connected to a convenience store. They pulled up and were about to start pumping their gas as the station was self-service. However, a man rushed out of the station as they were getting out of their car and insisted on helping them. Both Ali and Bassem began to notice things that set them on edge, but neither of them wanted to voice their concerns out loud in front of the strange man. Ali was closer to the man and got a good look at him as he was pumping their gas. He was around six feet, Caucasian, with dark eyes, dark hair, and a beard. Both men noticed the man's shaky demeanor and disheveled appearance as if he'd just been in a fight, but it was the middle of the night and they just wanted to get gas and be on their way. When the man was done pumping their gas, Ali paid him with five single-dollar bills. By then, he'd noticed the bruises and scratches on the man's arms. He also noticed stains on the man's clothes that looked like they could possibly be dried blood, as well as what was almost certainly fresh blood on the man's shoes. Bassem, who had been farther away and not noticed as much was wrong, started to walk up to the shop to get cigarettes. The man stopped him and said he'd get the cigarettes for him. Bassem told him what kind he wanted and asked how much they cost, to which the man said one dollar. Bassem had a five dollar bill and gave it to the man who disappeared inside the store. He came back out and gave Bassem the pack of cigarettes as well as four dollars in change, which appeared to be four of the bills that Ali had just given the man. Bassem noticed as the man was handing him the money that there appeared to be fresh blood on one of the bills. He also found it odd that the man said the cigarettes were only one dollar exactly. Even back in 1984, they weren't that cheap. When the two men got into their car, they drove off quickly and started telling each other about what they'd each noticed about the encounter. They quickly realized something was very wrong. They decided to head down the highway looking for either a phone or a police station, speeding along the desert road in hopes that they might catch a speed trap and get help even sooner. Bassem put the bloody dollar bill on the dashboard in an effort to minimize contamination. They didn't get pulled over, but eventually they reached a payphone and called the police. That would be the beginning of a small-town murder that would take authorities more than 20 years to solve. This is Monsters. Once at the payphone, Allie spoke to a 911 operator who told them to stay put. An officer got to the men's location about 20 minutes later. They collected the bloody money and had the students follow their car to the station. 
The boys told police what had happened, and a police sketch artist tried to assist them in making a composite. But Ali was frustrated that the artist couldn't draw exactly what he was picturing, and being an artist himself, he drew his own composite. Both men described the man's appearance, and both recalled the man had dark eyes and a vacant expression. Back at the gas station, police were on the scene within five minutes of the call. They found the gas station empty but in disarray, with a trail of blood leading from a spot on the floor and back into the storage room. The room was locked, so Officer Joseph Lynn Yeats climbed around the outside of the building to look into the window. He spotted someone lying on the ground covered in blood. He called for an ambulance and ran back into the store, where he and another officer kicked the door down. They soon discovered that they were too late. The victim was already dead. They canceled the ambulance, then radioed for backup. The officers identified the victim right away as 22-year-old Bradley Newell Perry. Brigham City was a small, close-knit community, and they knew him and his family well. Investigators found ample evidence of a struggle in the station. In the arcade area, a potted plant had been knocked over and there was a considerable amount of blood on the floor. Some of it was in a puddle where Bradley's body had likely been laying before he was dragged to the back room. There was also blood spread around by different shoe tracks, neither of which matched Bradley. Shelves had been knocked over and various items thrown about. Bradley Perry had put up a considerable fight. Evidence of a violent struggle was also apparent on Bradley's body. There was bruising on his torso and face. He had a defensive wound on his hand from blocking a knife blow and had been stabbed in both his stomach and back with a knife and a screwdriver. He'd been bludgeoned in the back of his head with a metal soda dispenser and a cast iron bell. He'd also at one point been strangled and the killer or killers had tied his hands behind his back with an electrical cord. For all of that carnage, the killer got away with just over $100 from the register. That would be just about $300 today. Police quickly circulated Allie's drawings and the description of the man. That night, an officer traveling not far from the scene found a man walking along the road who matched the composite sketch. The man even had blood on his shirt and hands. Police thought they might be able to at least close the case quickly and get whoever had killed Bradley off the streets. But when the man was brought in for a lineup, Bassam and Allie said he was not their man. Whatever reason he'd been wandering around covered in blood is unclear, but he was not the man who'd killed Bradley Perry. Another promising lead did come through that night, though. Someone made a report that two men were spotted driving a truck that matched the description of one fleeing the scene just before the shortstop was robbed. The truck had been driving slowly past another gas station, possibly casing it out. That let police know they were likely looking for two suspects. Because the murder had been so early in the day, word spread in the papers that someone had been killed only hours later. It was May 26, 1984, and before the day was over, many in the community knew that someone had been killed. But police were having trouble finding Bradley's family, so they didn't release his name. His father, Newell, was given the tragic news as soon as he was located, but Bradley's mother, Claudia, was out of state. She'd gone on a road trip to take their two youngest sons to SeaWorld in California, and in the days before cell phones, Newell couldn't get a hold of her right away. The next day, police figured out what hotel Claudia was staying at, but Newell thought it was important that the news be broken in person, even if it meant he wouldn't be the one to tell her. Newell decided to call up a firefighter that he knew tangentially to break the news to his wife. Unfortunately, the man wasn't trained in how to do such a task properly and couldn't give Claudia a lot of details. 
Claudia and her sons knew Bradley had been killed, but couldn't really get any answers. She and her boys began driving back to Utah. Lee, who was just a teenager at the time, was the second oldest after Bradley. He would later recall feeling the burden of suddenly being the oldest child, but not knowing what he was supposed to do. At one point on the way home, they got a flat tire that caused a delay, and Claudia was so stressed she threw up on the side of the road. When they finally arrived home, Claudia had even more to worry about. The press had surrounded their house and were yelling questions at her and her two young sons before they even had a chance to reunite with the rest of their family. Brigham City was a small town and violent crime was unusual and shocking. The media camped out on the Perry's lawn for days on end. A family friend had to go over and tell the reporters to back off multiple times. Claudia's parents flew into Brigham City to support their daughter when they got the news, and neighbors and friends tried to help out, but there was still so much to deal with. Eventually, the Perrys went out of state as they had connections in Montana, and they stayed there for a time to get away from the media circus. The investigation began quickly and intensely. The sheriff of Box Elder County, Robert Lim, quickly sent out the drawing of the suspect to neighboring agencies and received over 250 possible leads in the first few days. The FBI got involved right away as local police suspected the killer might have been a drifter and they wanted to be able to investigate possible similar crimes across state lines. Law enforcement was pursuing all possible avenues. They even brought in a hypnotist to see if witnesses who thought they'd seen the suspect might be able to remember any small details that could help. Along with sparse updates about the case, the media began printing information on Bradley Perry's life, and the public became even more eager for answers as they learned more about the man in their community who'd been killed just days before his 23rd birthday. Bradley Perry had two brothers and a sister, and like many in Brigham City, he was deeply religious. He was an active member of the Church of Latter-day Saints in Brigham City. He worked as both a Sunday school teacher and assistant scoutmaster and loved working with kids. Family and friends recalled him as both a gentle soul but not afraid to be fun and a bit silly with the kids. Bradley was an Eagle Scout and had received his Duty to God award from the church for a mission he completed in Louisiana. Recently home from his first mission, he was attending college to find out what he wanted to do with his life. He'd been working at the gas station to pay for his classes at Weber State and to save up for his wedding. He had a fiancé named Laura Boyd, and they were planning on getting married in the fall. The wedding was actually why he stayed home from the SeaWorld trip. He was extremely excited about the wedding and wanted to make it as nice as he could, so he'd been working extra hours. His family remembered him as a sweet kid above all else. Many in his family were into hunting and fishing, but he could never bring himself to kill a fish, let alone gut a deer. Bradley's sister, Nanette Wharton, said that Bradley had been her best friend. She'd suffered a disability after contracting polio as a child, and Bradley was protective of her when other kids tried to make fun of her growing up. She later said, quote, Brad was my protector. He'd walk me home from school and tell me how beautiful I was when I got teased. Both Bradley's family and everyone who knew him in the city were eager to see justice done. The media circus died down a bit, and the Perrys decided to return home. However, after they arrived from Montana, they found that their house had been broken into. Their home had been tossed and vandalized, and someone had even defecated on the floor of Brad's bedroom. Claudia immediately thought she knew who was responsible. There was a 15-year-old boy named Craig Martinez who lived next door who was already carving out a name around town as a troublemaker despite his young age. 
His friends had given him the nickname Monster because everyone knew he had a fragile and violent temper. He won't be the only monster in this story, though. Police searched Craig's bedroom and found numerous items stolen from the Perry family home. There was no doubt he'd been involved in the break-in, but police started to wonder if he might know something about the murder as well. Soon after, witnesses came forward to say they'd seen Craig at a party north of Brigham City the night of the murder with blood on his clothes. Police quickly also discovered that Craig was friends with a man named Thomas Nager, who was the assistant manager at the gas station where Bradley worked. From the very beginning, police had been suspecting there might have been someone involved who worked at the gas station. The gas pumps have to be reset from inside the gas station, which someone might not know unless they'd worked at a similar business. The safe was open the night of the murder, but Brad did not have the key. Thomas Nager had the key, and even more suspiciously, he showed up late the day of the murder. Police had even questioned him on the day of the murder, because he was supposed to have been at the station not long after Bradley was killed. Thomas had showed up hours late and joined in with a crowd of onlookers. He didn't go up to the police to ask what happened. They just picked him out of the crowd because they'd already been looking for him. Officers noted he was very nervous during questioning. Thomas's explanation for why he was not at work at the time of the murders was that he had slept in. He said Brad was going to call him to wake him up that morning. Police found his story suspicious, and Thomas's boss was very open to authorities that he didn't trust him. He'd actually called Thomas later that day to fire him because he suspected he'd been stealing from the store. Police also noted that as a Caucasian man with long hair and a beard, he bore a passing resemblance to the suspect. But police asked Ollie for input, and he couldn't be certain. In asking around town, police quickly found out that Craig and Thomas worked together to sell drugs, sometimes even out of the gas station. Police wondered if Brad had possibly stumbled upon the drug dealings. With the only evidence they had pointing towards Craig Martinez and Thomas Nager, investigators tried to see if they could match any of the sparse clues they had to the two men. The authorities had tried to preserve what little evidence they could from the scene, but didn't have a lot to go on. Police had found four sets of fingerprints that were prevalent in the gas station, but it was a gas station, so there were quite a lot to sort through. They'd also used a forensic vacuum to vacuum the floor that day and had managed to preserve one good hair sample they thought was from the murderer, but it was really the only major clue they had. Thomas Neger's fingerprints ended up not being a match to the four sets of prints investigators thought might be the suspects. However, interestingly, of the hundreds of fingerprints analyzed from the gas station, it turned out that none of them matched Thomas, which was exceedingly strange as he was the assistant manager. It's quite possible investigators didn't analyze every print that was present in the higher traffic areas. Both police and Bradley's family were certain that Craig Martinez and Thomas Neger were involved, but with no concrete evidence to tie them to the crime, the case went cold. Over the next few years, the case appeared sporadically in the papers only in the form of announcements about rewards for information. In that time, Bradley's little brother Lee grew up. He later recalled being surprised there was a drug presence in his town. His brother's murder and the ensuing investigation had opened his eyes to the less savory underbelly of the city he lived in. In his first few years as an adult, when he was trying to decide what he wanted to do with his life and still hoping his family might find some answers, he had a crisis of faith. Lee even had his driver's license altered to be able to purchase alcohol, which is forbidden under LDS church laws. However, a few years into the investigation, Lee got a hold of Bradley's old journals and started reading through them. He found the journals Bradley had written during his first mission particularly interesting. 
While in Louisiana, Bradley had been in a very serious accident when a car hit him while he was riding his bike. The accident was so bad he was admitted to the ICU. During his time in the hospital, Brad journaled about his faith and feelings and concluded that not everything that happens is God's fault. Sometimes bad things just happen and the challenge is overcoming them. Lee said that that passage brought him out of his crisis. Lee eventually decided to become a public safety officer. Though his brother's murder and the ongoing investigation certainly had a profound impact on him, he did not pursue law enforcement because of that. He later said that when he was young, he never pictured joining law enforcement as he didn't understand why they couldn't find answers to his brother's murder. He ended up in law enforcement somewhat accidentally. There was a part-time clerical job he found for the highway patrol which worked perfectly with his class schedule, but one day he went on a ride-along and started to think he'd found his calling. He later summed up his thoughts to the job as, quote, We get to help people. We get to drive fast. Bradley's other siblings grew up too as the years passed and his fiancée started to think about moving on. It would be over a decade until any new progress would be made on Bradley's case. In 1997, a man named Scott Cosgrove was a newly minted detective in Brigham City, and his superior decided to give him the task of trying to reopen the case. It had been over a decade at that point, and Brigham City Police wanted the case reinvestigated to see if they could make headway with new forensic technology, as DNA testing and fiber analysis had made huge strides since the 1980s. Scott Cosgrove, like many residents of Brigham City, was very religious. His first step when he got the case was to pray and meditate, and he felt that God told him the case could be solved. He dove in headfirst, digging through the files and watching the surveillance footage over and over. Detective Cosgrove put the Perry family name in a prayer box at the local temple. For three years, Cosgrove worked to make headway, but it was slow work. Bradley's family was growing frustrated and felt that there might be enough information against Craig Martinez and Thomas Nager to pursue legal action, but the county attorney's office disagreed. Red tape and general bureaucracy stagnated the investigation until someone unexpected came in to help. Amy Hughie had been just a child when Bradley was murdered. Bradley had been her babysitter and their families had always been close. Amy's father had been the one to chase away reporters from the Perry family home those first few days after the murder. Amy had many fond memories of Bradley playing silly games with her and her siblings. In the years since Bradley's murder, she'd grown up and graduated law school and even became the Perry's family lawyer. She soon began working for the district attorney's office and started pushing for the investigation to move forward. A few years into his investigation, Cosgrove began to make headway. In early 2003, Cosgrove announced that Craig Martinez was being charged with obstruction of justice in regards to things he'd said to other inmates about possible knowledge of the case. The charges were based on a series of phone calls recorded in late 2000. Craig told his young son that a certain witness was talking too much and that he was going to kick his ass and stomp on his neck. His son was still in elementary school at the time. He also told his mother that he was being investigated for Bradley Perry's murder instead of Cosgrove, quote, I'll fuck him up. Since Craig was already locked up and the investigators were not having any luck questioning him, they decided to bring in Thomas Nager. On the way to the station, Thomas became defensive and irate and asked the police why they were bothering him when they knew Craig had been the one who had killed Brad. He told police he'd heard numerous people around town say they'd heard Craig bragging about killing Bradley. With that, the investigators got a warrant. 
Police were hoping that one of the two men might end up being a match for the hair sample they'd preserved from the scene of the crime so many years ago. The hair sample had never been analyzed because the technology had been vastly different a decade prior. When it was time to collect a sample from Craig, he had to be subdued with a whole team of guards. He'd shaved his whole body, and when they finally wrestled him into the nurse's office, he told Cosgrove, quote, I guess you won't be getting my hair. However, he'd neglected to shave his nipples, so the police were able to run a sample. And really, even if they hadn't, all they had to do was wait for some hair to grow out. It wasn't a terribly clever plan. After everything, the hair sample came back negative for both Craig Martinez and Thomas Nager. Cosgrove was back to square one. Lee later said his family did not think they would ever see justice done at that point, stating, quote, We really thought it would be dealt with in the afterlife. Though the hair had not been a match, the fact that there was new technology they had access to that had not been applied to all of the evidence gave Cosgrove hope that maybe they could gain new insights from other evidence. He decided to focus on applying new technology to the blood evidence of the crime. Amy Hugie helped contribute funds to bring everything up to date and run additional tests that were somewhat experimental at the time. However, they didn't have any luck. Everything they ran from the scene was just Brad's blood. They checked the dollar bill last as it had been preserved separately. The bill had been frozen in case that helped as technology moved forward. It took weeks for the testing, but to the surprise of almost everyone, it came back with a match. Over the course of the investigation, over 300 suspects were investigated and hundreds of fingerprints were cross-referenced. It had been 20 years, but finally they had a suspect that they could potentially tie to the crime. It was June of 2005 when a sample was matched and it came back with the name of Glenn Howard Griffin. Glenn had been arrested just the year prior for weapons charges. His blood was taken as part of a blanket policy that had the DNA of newly charged felons placed in a database to check against other crimes. Glenn Griffin was not someone who had ever been a suspect in Bradley's murder, but he had been in and out of prison his entire adult life, so police were able to quickly pull together some information for Cosgrove. Glenn had at one point operated a meth lab and had numerous drug and weapons charges over the years. When authorities were investigating Craig Martinez, they thought he had killed Bradley because he was someone with an explosive and violent temper. They thought he had just taken things too far and that murder had simply been the next logical step in his violent outbursts. Investigators were wrong about the suspect, but they had been right about how Bradley had been killed. Glenn was also a man with a violent temper. Though he'd never been charged with a murder before, the fact that he might escalate to such a thing was not a surprise to those around him. Glenn's ex-wife, Janine Roberts, detailed to the authorities a disturbing incident where Glenn had hurt their 14-year-old daughter. The family had been celebrating New Year's Eve together one year. However, Glenn got an invite to a party that seemed more exciting than spending time with his family, and he asked his daughter to watch the other kids. She said she didn't want to babysit, so Glenn went into a rage. He destroyed the girl's porcelain doll collection, and when that wasn't enough, he shoved her head through a wall. After that, Glenn's ex-wife fled with the children and tried to hide in a friend's basement. However, Glenn knew where that friend lived and guessed she had gone there. He showed up and broke down the front door of the home. He had a pistol drawn and seemed ready to use it, but the family had called the police and they arrived shortly after he broke through the door. He was charged with burglary and intoxication and forced to undergo a psychological evaluation. 
Doctors determined that he was potentially mentally unwell and unstable. Yeah, no shit. During his investigation, Cosgrove also spoke with Glenn's family to try to get as much information as he could on the man. He went to a town just outside of Brigham City to question Glenn's parents. His mother, Arlene, said that Glenn would commit petty crimes and hurt animals. He'd always had trouble with the law. At that point, investigators were fairly certain that Glenn had an accomplice, so Cosgrove questioned Arlene about Glenn's friends and acquaintances during the 80s. Glenn was refusing to cooperate with law enforcement, so police focused the investigation on his accomplice. If they could find him, perhaps he would testify. Detectives tracked down leads over nearby Arizona and Nevada, then to the Midwest to follow a possible lead in Detroit, before finally following a lead into Washington that led them to a man named Wade Mayan. Wade had been one of the friends that Arlene had mentioned to the detective. She said he'd been involved in Glenn's criminal activities, but that she unfortunately always suspected her son was the ringleader in those illegal ventures. Wade had moved to Spokane, Washington shortly after Bradley was killed. Police in Spokane told Cosgrove that Wade was actually a witness in another investigation, so they had probable cause to bring him in. Upon his arrest, police told him right away there was another case they wanted to discuss with him. They showed him pictures of the crime scene and Bradley's body and told him that that was what they were really interested in. When he saw the pictures, Wade averted his eyes and said, quote, Oh my God. Wade initially tried to pretend he hadn't participated in the murder, but police told him that they knew that Glenn couldn't have killed Brad on his own. They also told him that Glenn was going to be released if they couldn't get evidence, which was true. Glenn's sentence was running out. Eventually, Wade confessed. He said he was ready to get what he'd done off his conscience. He confessed to holding Bradley's legs down while Glenn stabbed him and strangled him. Wade said he'd only participated in the murder because he was afraid of Glenn. Though he'd helped kill Bradley, he did seem to regret what he'd done. Wade waived extradition, going to Utah voluntarily to help end the case sooner. Wade's confession also helped piece together a clearer picture of what had happened that night Bradley was killed. Wade and Glenn had been out drinking at a party in Brigham City that night and they had both been drunk. They stopped at the convenience store after they had left the party and Glenn was in the mood for a fight. Glenn started arguing with Bradley, saying he had given him the wrong change back. He was becoming belligerent, so Bradley threatened to call the police. Glenn then grabbed the phone from Bradley and hit him with it. Wade said during his later statement, quote, I was so afraid of Glenn. I've never seen him so violent before. Without hesitation, Glenn grabbed a nearby screwdriver and stabbed Bradley. He then allegedly threatened to kill Wade if he didn't help him. Ali and Bassem had driven up to the station while Bradley was still alive, but after he'd been tied up. Had they walked into the station, they quite possibly would have been victims as well. After Glenn went to deal with the students, they brought Bradley in the back room where he was stabbed over 15 times and eventually bludgeoned. Glenn denied all of that, of course, and when questioned how his blood ended up on the dollar bill, he said that he worked with his hands and that it was not unusual for him to cut his hands at work. He said that his blood could have ended up on the bill at any point during the day. Glenn did have a point. A speck of blood on a dollar bill would not be enough evidence to convict him. However, investigators still had the hair sample they'd failed to match against Craig Martinez and Thomas Nager. Mitochondrial testing that was used on the hairs the year prior was so new that it had never been used in court in the state of Utah before. 
The technology was still so new, in fact, that if Glenn had been caught just a few years earlier, it would have been impossible to match. But when the investigators ran the hair sample, they were able to match it to Glenn Griffin. With his hair at the scene near Bradley's body and his blood on the dollar bill, authorities had a solid case. Glenn's case was the first in 75 years that Box Elder County prosecutors sought the death penalty due to the brutal nature of the crime. Claudia later said that like Lee, she thought there was a good chance that Bradley's killer would only end up facing justice in the afterlife. She said that they'd managed to move on and had found a sense of closure and that the trial was bringing up some bad memories. But whatever emotional turmoil the trial brought, it was a relief to finally get justice. It would be several more years of preliminary hearings, evidence gathering, and red tape before Glenn Griffin would finally have his day in court. And during that time, an unusual friendship was formed. Arlene and Claudia met soon after Glenn was identified as a suspect. The first time they met face to face, they hugged each other and cried. Arlene said she'd also lost a son, but in a different way. During Mother's Day one year, Claudia visited Arlene to bring her a card and give her a hug. In the years leading up to the trial, Arlene still visited her son every week. She would tell him how his kids were doing and talk about mundane things like the weather. Before the trial concluded, when there was still some measure of doubt about Glenn's guilt, Arlene said that no matter how the trial turned out, quote, neither of us are going to win this one. When Glenn's trial finally began, Claudia and Arlene held hands. Throughout the trial, the defense would argue that the testimony given by Bradley's loved ones was excessive. They objected to even the most basic facts, but the judge overruled the objections. Perhaps the most heartbreaking testimony came from Bradley's fiancée, Laura. They'd only been together eight months, but in the LDS community, marriages tend to move a bit faster, and they both had similar goals in life. Though they hadn't known each other for years, they were in love and wanted to build a future together. Laura told the courtroom, quote, Brad was the love of my life. She said she couldn't imagine dating or trying to be with anyone else after his death. In fact, it was 14 years before she would finally move on and get married. The defense tried to argue that there was not enough evidence to tie Glenn to the crime. None of his fingerprints were found at the scene. He'd worn glasses since childhood, but the man spotted at the station wasn't wearing glasses. He also had no way to get into the safe at the gas station, which to this day does remain a bit of a mystery about the case. Wade Mon had gone back on his earlier statements and refused to testify during the trial, but the prosecution still had other witnesses who'd heard of Glenn's guilt over the years. The most damning statement came from Benjamin Pritt, who testified that he'd overheard his cellmate talking to Glenn while in jail. Glenn and the man were arguing about how blood had gotten on the fateful dollar bill. Glenn told the man that he'd been bitten. In putting up such an impressive struggle in his final moments, Bradley Perry had managed to provide the key piece of evidence that would bury his killer. The jury deliberated for less than two hours. On November 14, 2008, Glenn Griffin was found guilty of first-degree murder. Claudia and Newell both sat with Arlene and supported her as she watched her son get sentenced to life in prison. Soon after, Wade Mine was charged as an accomplice, but was eventually acquitted due to lack of evidence. It was unfortunate news for the family, but the important thing was that the man who'd killed Brad was finally behind bars. In early 2009, Glenn's legal team announced that they were going to appeal his sentence. They said they had a witness who claimed to know who the real killer was, and he was someone who had a grudge against the store for losing his job. That appeal would fail, and he would try again in 2016 without success. 
Though it took two decades to find justice, the monster who killed Bradley Perry is on track to spend the rest of his life in prison. Though Bradley's little brother Lee did not go into law enforcement because of him, he does try to apply the things he went through toward helping others. During his time in law enforcement, he would often go out of his way to be the one to notify a family of a relative's death because he felt like he understood what they were going through, and he wanted to make sure it was done properly. Lee went on to become a state representative and still speaks to the media about issues he thinks are important. One of his most recent projects has been trying to modernize mental health care for law enforcement officers. He's spoken a great deal about officers being told they simply need to buck up and get over the deaths and injuries they see on a daily basis. It's quite possible the officers who found Brad's body, who knew him and had to process the scene, were simply told to buck up and get back to work, and Lee hopes that law enforcement is moving away from that. He's also campaigned relentlessly to try and widen the scope of DNA testing and to bring the backlog DNA databases into the present. He wants to do anything he can to prevent other families from going through what their family had been through. He hopes that with the work he does, other families might be spared years or even decades of waiting for answers. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.